Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Let us pray. Loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. My grandmother, Sterling, was a very strong character indeed. She had a strong will, a strong personality, a strong sense of what is right and wrong. She was very much the product of her own era growing up in the north of England. And grandmother, though, could be very stubborn. And once she visited us when we were living in the northeast of England in Darlington. And it was my duty as the grandson to take her to a department store in the town that we lived in. It had a number of stories to this, a number of floors. And so my grandmother walked in and went onto the ground floor, and that's what I thought she wanted to see. And like a lot of department stores, a lot of the glamour items were there. The perfumes, the jewelry, the makeup, the beautiful things. But my grandmother was determined, even though she was well into her mid-90s, that she was going to see the whole store. I don't just want the glamour stuff, she said. I want to see the whole thing. So there I am, standing in front of an escalator, getting ready to take my grandmother up to all these different floors. Well, she gets on the escalator in front of me, but unfortunately, she stood on the gap between the stairs. And as the escalator began to expand, my grandmother began to tilt backwards. So for the duration of the ride, there I am holding her entire weight as she's leaning up against me. A woman in her 90s, this is. I'm terrified. And what will we do when we get to the top? I mean, will she collapse into a forward roll? Like, what are we going to do? So finally, we get to the top, and she staggers, and she maintains her uprightness, and she looks at me in classic Lancashire. She says, E by gum, lad, she said. That was exciting. After I had regained consciousness, <laughs> the staff came running over because they had seen what had happened, and they themselves were terrified. I managed to convince my grandmother to go very gently onto the other stairs and the other floors. But more than anything, she wanted to see everything. Pots, pans, bedding, clothing, you name it, the ordinary stuff. She didn't just want the glamour, she wanted to have a full experience. Now, Psalm 103, that Laurie has read powerfully for us this morning, in a poetic form, is really, in a sense, a statement about seeing all of God by having a testimony to the entirety of God's character and grace and activity. What makes this psalm so special is the breadth that it paints of God's activity and God's passion. It's particularly bold 
in dealing with a tension that we often feel within scriptures. And the tension is not only in the Old Testament or even in the New, but the entire Bible. And it is the tension between seeing God as a judge, the God of justice, the God of righteousness, the God who sides with the oppressed, the God who is against sin, and on the other hand, the God of mercy, the God of forgiveness, the God of love, the God of redemption, the God of new beginnings. And I think all of us live to some extent with that tension in our own relationship with God, don't we? And I think that even those outside of the covenant of the church also feel that same way. Some see God primarily as the divine judge and the enactor of judgment and feel that that is the dominant characteristic of God, while others feel that God is merciful and gracious, and that that is the dominant motif for God. But here in this particular psalm, we see both coming together. The great Old Testament professor, uh, Klaus Westermann, said there is a difference, though, between the weight that is given between judgment and mercy in the scriptures. He says the judgment of God has sort of a boundary to it, whereas the mercy of God does not have the same boundaries. So while God is both just and merciful, the mercy often goes beyond the judgment. And you see that in these passages here. He says so high above is the sort of the forgiveness and the mercy of God. It, it is from as far as the east is from the west. It is like a parent with a child that God recognizes our sins and God knows that we have fallen short. God sees the injustice and the oppression, but still God does not count our iniquities against us or treating us in sort of a balance. His favor exceeds even his judgment. God is both a judge, though, and merciful. But there's always that caveat for those who fear him, for those who are obedient to him. So don't take God's mercy for granted. It is not something that just automatically happens. It must come from our response of faith in him. And so in this powerful passage, what we have is a picture of the psalmist talking in very personal terms about how God is both just and merciful. And look at the beginning, because it's like he's having a conversation with himself. And he ends the psalm like he has a conversation with himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. This is an invitation to himself to bless the Lord, to honor and to glorify the Lord. There is a great rabbinic tradition that suggests that all the organs that we have in, in our body correspond with our emotions. 
and that our heart, our lung, our brain, our bowels, our liver, everything has an emotional component to it, and that the whole person is made up of these organs which emotionally respond to different sensory things and even to God. So when he says, all that is within me, the rabbis would say, meaning every part of us, every single part of us, is to bless the Lord and to praise the Lord. It's a wonderful image because often we bless the Lord only in partial terms, whereas the psalmist looks at an all-in response to the all-sovereign God. It's a wonderful image. But it's not just personal. I mean, he's not just talking about sort of my truth. He's talking about the truth. And he refers to Moses and the Mosaic law and how Moses was used by God for all the people to be able to bless the Lord. So he recognizes that it's not just an individual thing, although for him it was very much an individual thing, but that it is also a corporate thing. And it is where the entire community of faith comes to recognize the glory and the majesty of God. What is our response then to this all-encompassing, sovereign, and glorious God well, the answer is he uses the word barach. And barach is sort of a blessing or a blessedness. And this blessedness in the Hebrew means almost kneeling down. And that you're blessing God by humbly coming into God's presence. This Lent, it seems to me that one of the great lessons for us is to come into the presence of God humbly. Now, that does not mean, as we normally would, being able to come into the house of the Lord and to worship, to bow on bended knee as some people do when they come into the church and pray. It does not mean that we're able to do that as a group physically, but you still can do it in your own life. You can still every day get up and be like the psalmist and say to yourself, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. It's a great gift. And if you can do that every day, then your walk with the totality of God will become real. But for a moment, I want to take a little detour. I want to take this passage and I want to look at it in the light of the cross of Christ. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the stories of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. And next week, of course, we will be looking at something similar. But this week, I want to look at the cross and Holy Week in the light of Psalm 103. Now, some may say, yes, but you're looking back at this passage uh, through the lens of the New Testament. Is that a legitimate thing to do? Well, the reformers all did it. I think it's very important to see. 
Because if we're looking at the totality of God, if we're looking at the things that God does in God's character, supremely we see this embodied, incarnate in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So as we look at this passage, maybe our detour into this Old Testament psalm is helpful for us to understand. Because detours can really enliven and enlighten us. Even in a physical sense, a detour can be helpful. I remember some years ago, Meryl and I were driving from Aberdeen to Inverness across the north of Scotland. And there's one road that links, essentially, those two cities. And as we were driving along uh, in a rental car with a map, we realized that there was a detour signed and a major portion of the road was under repair. So there was a detour sign, and this detour took us all the way along the top of what is known as the Craig Gorms, that magnificent habitat of hills and animals in the north of Scotland. And we went on some magnificent winding roads and along by some brooks. Oh yes, we also went past some of the great whiskey scotch distillers along the way. Not that we stopped there, mind you, but anyway, we kept on going until we got to Inverness. But it was the most beautiful detour. It was an unexpected road with immense beauty. And so as we go off the road with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem and we stop off at Psalm 103, believe you me, there's a lot in here that speaks about the glory and the majesty of Christ. And there are seven words that describe God's activity that I think relate very realistically to the person of Jesus Christ. Look at the text very carefully for a moment with me. The psalmist sees the wholeness of God, as I mentioned. He sees the judgment of God. He sees the mercy of God. But then in a little stanza, he uses these phrases. First of all, he says, God forgives us all our iniquities. So he starts describing, in a sense, the values, the virtues, the characteristics of God in terms of forgiveness. A very good friend of mine who ministered in Nova Scotia and also at the Church of the Advent in Boston, Massachusetts, David Curry, would always remind me in conversations that at the heart of the biblical message is that one word, forgiveness. And that this word forgiveness constitutes so much of God's activity on our behalf. And is that not what is captured in the New Testament, especially by the Apostle Paul? In the book of Romans, he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And even on the cross, Christ Jesus says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The psalmist talks about the forgiveness of all sins. Jesus on the cross enacts it. The psalmist goes on and he says, He heals all our wounds. He heals all our wounds. Well, woundedness is something that we all know something about. And we certainly know about it 
during COVID. Our wounds are deep, are they not? Very deep. And this notion, though, that God comes in and heals the wounds and restores that which is broken is a powerful image. It was a powerful image in the life and the ministry of Jesus. I mean, we've looked at Jesus' healing ministry over the last few weeks, but it's not just there that we find the healing. The healing goes beyond that. Peter wrote, by his wounds, Christ's wounds, we are healed. By his own suffering, he heals us and restores us. It's marvelous. He not only forgives, he not only heals, but he also redeems from the pit. He redeems, he saves from the pit. I've often thought that there is a qualitative difference between God and ourselves. And that is why we need a redeemer. The psalmist put it this way in this psalm, we're all mortals and we're all like flowers. We all fade. We do not last. And I love an illustration that Fred Craddock once used, the great preacher. He said, you know, he said, it's like the relationship between a sculptor and a piece of art. A sculptor will make a piece of art and often the piece of art will outlive the sculptor. The sculptor will die but the piece of art will remain. He says, but not so with God. The sculptor makes the piece of art, which is ourselves, and we ourselves might not live on, but the sculptor does. But it's that very sculptor who enables even that which he has made to live on as well. The psalmist understood that God redeems from the pit. And in the person of Jesus, the crucified in the tomb, and then the risen one, we see that redemption at work. He describes God as the crown, the crown. He crowns us with his mercy. The human being for all our mortality, for all our warts and all our sins is still made in the image of God. We are, in a sense, the crown of God's creation. There is something special about being human because we're made in the image of that divine sculptor who made us. And therefore, we're precious. And therefore, he crowns us with his mercy. And when I look at the life of Jesus, I see crowns. I see not only the crown of glory, I see the crown of thorns, the crown that he wore upon his head, the crown that made him jeered and mocked for being the king of the Jews. But he wore that crown precisely because God is merciful and loves us. We are told that this God also fifthly satisfies the good for our whole life. He satisfies the good for our whole life. 
Our whole life from the moment that we're born to the moment that we leave this earth is precious. And God satisfies us. What with his presence? This is what God does. Jesus said to the disciples, look, I will be with you always, even to the end of the earth. I will not leave you. And there's nothing that satisfies our sense of the goodness of life more than having the presence of Jesus Christ in it. This is why we celebrate our risen Lord. The psalmist also goes on to say that he will renew us. And he uses the image of eagles again. Eagles that soar, eagles that fly, eagles that go beyond the ordinary. Being lifted up, being sustained, being renewed like we were in our youth. I was in a lineup not long ago for, for a vaccine, and, and there were a whole group of people of a certain age, and, and everyone was sort of saying, it's amazing, isn't it, when you get to a certain age, standing for half an hour in the cold really takes it out of you, and people were laughing and moaning and groaning and complaining and so on. And um, it's very true that there is a need, particularly as you get older, to have the wings of youth lift you up. But it's not only that, it's also when we're down that we need to be renewed. It's not just a matter of age. It's a matter of the spiritual power of God in Christ lifting us up. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people unto me. That is the inspiring lifting up into the presence of God by the person of Jesus. But his last one is, and this is a powerful verse, said he will vindicate the oppressed. He will vindicate the oppressed. Ultimately, God is not only the judge, but God is the vindicator of justice. And I sometimes hear people say things like, well, all we really need in Jesus is a knowledge of, of who he was and what he did, that he was a good man, that he took the side of the oppressed, that that is really the essential Jesus. Well, it is the essential Jesus. But so too is the crucified and the risen Jesus. For surely the ultimate vindication of God's love and mercy and justice is seen on the cross and in an empty tomb. The victory, the vindication, is seen in Jesus Christ himself. You cannot separate the deeds of Jesus from the person of Jesus any more than you can separate the notion of right and wrong and justice from the divine giver of that justice and that righteousness. And the psalmist brings them all together. For the psalmist, there is no distinction. This is the same God. This is the whole, the complete God. And I believe as we get ready for Holy Week, we will see all of those things 
manifested in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. When my grandmother and I had finally finished our rather laborious tour of that department store, and we were all a wee bit tired and shell-shocked, my grandmother took me to the little restaurant that was adjacent to it, and we had tea and scones and crumpets. Very elegant. And I remember my grandmother really having enjoyed the day despite all the theatrics early on. And she said, lad, it's awfully good to have somebody there when you fall. It's awfully good to have someone there when you fall. And what this psalmist reminds us of is that our souls bless the Lord in case we fall. And he is always there to lift us up. Holy Week vindicates that truth. May this Lord be with you and those you love. Amen.